Welcome to the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Paddy Farrell. How are you this week, Paddy? I am absolutely fantastic, Gary. It's actually freezing where I am currently. Uh, it was freezing all day, and um, I hope it was much warmer down in uh, the sunny South Cork area. Absolutely roasting, as always, as you can see if you're watching this on YouTube and <laughs> In the tropical paradise of uh, Douglas Cork. <laughs> anyway, right, Gary. So in the last episode, <clears throat> we introduced the topic of obesity, and this is where we're going with the, the next few episodes of the podcast. Because again, like so as we said in the last episode, people have a a very uh, simplified view of the obesity epidemic, and thus people have very simplified views as to the solution for the obesity epidemic and like this is not to say that people aren't coming from a good place because ultimately as you if you listen to the last episode we came to basically the same solution as individuals for ourselves like the 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 solution we can give it basically comes down to finding a way to exercise and finding a way to manage your nutrition you know and it's like that's not a great messaging overall in terms of what we can provide people but unfortunately we're not policy makers well actually fortunately for our health uh we're not policy makers and so that's like there's not a huge amount that we can do on that front right however i do want to enlighten hopefully and people in terms of the, the various aspects that do go into this whole epidemic this obesity epidemic which again we discussed in the last episode and there's quite a lot that we can further introduce in this episode but i would say go back and listen to that previous episode because we we gave a little bit of an example at the end of it obviously an introduction to the topic and then an example at the end of it and as we said like hopefully it is apparent that those two situations they're not the same situations in terms of we'll call it their risk for obesity or their ability to handle obesity if they do find themselves in an obese state um so the causes of obesity, before we get into that, Gary, do you have anything else to add to that? Because you are part of the podcast, I'll allow it. No, I'm here to discuss the causes of obesity. Let's go. <laughs> right. So there's obviously, this is multifactorial and realistically, we're not going to cover every single cause here, but I want to introduce, we'll call them like six broader categories um, that you can kind of conceptualize this stuff and kind of think about this stuff in terms of the causes of obesity Um, and the first one is education around nutrition right and i don't mean just in terms of oh people just don't know what to eat right because like most people do know what to eat like that's like that's most people do most people are like i know fruit and fruits and vegetables are good for me you know you might be uh fuzzy on the specifics in terms of you know how much protein i should have or how much of this i should have but most people if you ask them like what are good foods they'd be able to point out good foods right and now obviously we would be advocating for you know better information in whatever aspect that is you know in terms of nutrition, uh, increasing your nutritional IQ, we'll call it, or nutritional knowledge, like it always is a good thing, right? However, there's some things within this that really do fall into the topic of education and the obesity epidemic in terms of the the 
progression of this, this situation that we find ourselves in. And the first one is the media representation of nutrition, right? Um, it's effectively bad science communication. Would you agree with that, Craig? I think so. You have anything to add to that? That education is, it has, has, the education has been poor. Um, I would say like, yeah, like I, to be honest, like I'm, 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 I think I'm a pessimist on this topic in general, uh, like, which is why I don't get very excited as you bring it up because like, I think that education is fairly futile. Um, like I like to think myself personally, I think that education is quite powerful. And I think that education is a positive thing. And I think that as you start from childhood and you bring health education into schools and I think that it's great it sounds like a fantastic thing and I think overall promoting health literacy especially as it relates to things like nutrition for example is very much a positive thing Um, however I don't think that um, the a large proportion of 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 obesity prevalence um, would be modified by people having better knowledge of nutrition as such but I do think it's it's definitely a part of the puzzle and I think that I think that there's there's something be said here for the difference between centralized education and decentralized education because i think this is where a lot more a lot of confusion actually arises because what people will say are things like oh you know we're always so confused because one minute they are telling us to eat this and then the next minute they are telling us to eat this and it's constantly changing whereas if you actually look at like nutrition guidelines and nutrition recommendations and the consensus of most researchers for decades, not much has changed at all in terms of what is actually recommended um, as being mostly healthy foods um, and foods to be avoided in excess. And I think that's actually true on the, the, the calories in calories outside of things. Like we've definitely refined our knowledge exactly. over the last while, but like they've known that for 200 years more than that like people literally knew it maybe not the actual caloric stuff but they were like if you eat more you gain weight if you eat less you lose weight like they they knew that exactly and i think that i think that's i think this is where kind of confusion arises is because particularly in the age of where people get more and more information from social media they feel like the messages are changing more than they actually are. And that also goes for popular media like newspapers, particularly newspapers that rely on shock headlines and and new messages, etc. There's kind of always a release of something new. Like you'll see things like, oh, a study just finds that um, eggs uh, increase rates of diabetes by 300% or something along those lines. Whereas if you were to actually get the messages from, um, in some cases, centralized authorities on nutrition, um, and in, in other cases, just nutrition researchers on average, things haven't really changed at all. So I, I, think, that, I think that you do have to be clear on, on what you actually mean when you talk about nutrition education. Um, because in some cases, people just don't really know like what is reliable information, what isn't reliable information. And that's obviously exploited then um, and through media. Yeah. That's what I, I was going to go on to as well, especially with social media, yeah. like whatever about the, we'll call it the established media representation that's gotten more and more and more clickbaity as I don't know, my life, your life has progressed. And yeah. um, <laughs> since the, whatever, the invention of the internet, I suppose. And, um, and that obviously leads to a situation where like nutritional science communication gets worse because like 
if you publish a study that says, yes, calories are the cause of obesity, like that's not going to be something that a newspaper can put out and get a lot of clicks onto their website. Whereas if you go find a study, get a study, publish a study that says like, like you said, like eggs cause this or, you know, butter causes this or whatever. People are like, Oh my God, I eat butter. I, like I, I have to see what this says, you know? Um, so again, like you, the, the, the established media representation of nutritional knowledge has been quite poor, but then obviously with the rise of social media, this is even exacerbated further because not only are like newspapers trying to sell, now you've got all these different individuals in the market trying to sell. So they're also trying to uh, distinguish themselves with a new diet or a new way or a new take on nutrition or whatever it is. Uh, oh, there's these detox teas and the issue is detox and, you know, whatever it is that, you know, we've talked about before on the podcast and, you know, most call them evidence-based uh, individuals would call out in terms of being bad nutritional science, bad practices within this whole sphere. And um, like those two things have been really bad for the, the education side of things right and then layering on top of that the the overall education around like we'll call it food advertising like the way food is advertised and this even goes down to something we'll get on to later on in terms of like policy but also in terms of the the, the food advertising around you know how they label products in terms of the, the nutritional facts on the back you know they try all these things where it's like here's a red uh box to signify that this is a high calorie dense food you know but they put these labels on the, the the foods but that doesn't mean that they communicate the science in terms of how to interpret those labels you know and that's that's obviously an issue because you can do all that you want like introduce this traffic light system or introduce this you know point system or whatever you can think of but if the people on the street don't know how to interpret and use that system like it's irrelevant. Like imagine having traffic lights on the road that nobody knew what they meant. They were just all driving on whatever color they saw. They did, they did, they had no interpretation of it. So the education side of things around that as well, very poor, you know? And the next thing on top of that is, you know, there's no, like, obviously you do have like the market provides in terms of, you know, you have like your Jamie Oliver's and whoever else teaching people how to cook, but it's not like there's some, cooking education as part of the you know your your schooling you know it's not like in primary school or secondary school or your third level education that you get like mandatory cooking education like it's not a thing right and that obviously leads to a society that clearly doesn't value cooking right and that obviously leads to further outcomes where people aren't able to cook like the amount of like obviously like i'm a guy i presume you're a guy don't want to assume um but uh it leads to a situation where like I definitely know a good few lads that are in my friend group or, you know, I went to school with or whatever that legitimately can't cook. Like they literally beans on toast. That's, that's all they're able to cook. You know, like the entire time they lived at home, like maybe they made a sandwich for themselves or a toasty if they were feeling, feeling, you know, exotic. Um, but they literally would make cereal in the morning. Like there's no preparation needed for that, you know, a sandwich for, for lunch. And then they would have whatever was going for the evening meal in terms of whatever their parents cooked, you know? And obviously if you introduce them then out into the free world, we'll call it, and they have no cooking skills, like the only thing that's left for them to get in the evening is either to make another sandwich <laughs> or it's to order out, you know? 
until they hopefully find someone else, a partner that can cook. But even then it's like, do you really think your partner is going to cook every single meal for you? Do you think that's a, an equitable situation to be in? You know, it's not, that's, that's not, that's not a great way to structure your life. And again, it comes down to the situation where we just didn't get education in terms of cooking at the beginning stages whatever you know and obviously again like and it's something that we'll touch on again with the overall structuring of society which is another thing we'll get onto. and um, like there is some parental responsibility as well within this um but we'll get on to that um do you have anything else to add to that because there's only one more thing i want to touch on the education side of things yeah like i think that like food preparation skills are something that you do see coming up time and time again and, and it does go beyond cooking as well you know there's there's other things that you know you mightn't even think of like all right how do you get the most out of your vegetables you know how are you gonna how are you gonna prepare them and store them and make sure that you know and, and you know just n- different knowledge related to food and Even then how to cook like it. for it it's yeah like, all that like, sort of stuff how do you how do you like where's the the veg what should i get like what what goes together in a meal like yeah all these food preparation skills they're just non-existence in quite a lot of people yeah and you see them it's you see that come up as a barrier in lots of the the qualitative research again that you know it's not necessarily just that people don't know what to eat, but they don't necessarily know how to put together a meal that is both, both healthful um, as well as being, you know, tasty and something that they can give to their kids. And that is definitely something that you do need to consider. Um, Particularly like, I think when you are an adult, like for example, like personally, I'm very easygoing. Like as in, if I'm, if I'm looking for a meal and I'm like, look, I want, protein and fiber in this meal they're my priorities like i'll just pour some kidney beans into a bowl and not cook them and just take some leftover chicken like whatever's there like it's not a big deal to me but if i was a parent and i was trying to feed my kids and i was trying to you know make sure that they're healthy that's a totally different story because i have to find a way to make it palatable so you know it's tasty that there's a good mouthfeel that maybe it's similar to other foods that they like and that's actually a lot more complicated and they're the they're basically the roots of the children's uh, food behaviors going forward then so there is a lot more to it and i think that sometimes as individuals who go to the gym we kind of lose sight of that because we're all in the game we're like yeah, bro, you know, I'll cook chicken and rice and broccoli, broccoli and I'll just eat that. That's fine. But, you know, try and feed that to your kids, you know, and that's, that's where things get a bit more complicated. So food preparation skills, um, really, really important. Yeah, and this even goes into like people basically coddling their kids throughout their, their life, right? Like I know that my two youngest brothers, neither of them can cook for fucking shit, right? Like if you put them out in the wild right now and be like, yeah, here, you won the lotto, here's a house for you. They, they genuinely don't know how to cook their own food. Like I have to literally make my brother eggs when he wants them, you know, like, <laughs> like he can't cook. <laughs> um, and like, how do you solve that? Obviously, like you said, like there's parental stuff in terms of the beginning nutrition stuff where, you know, you might be very easy going, but you have to create meals for your kids to get good nutrition. And if you don't have great cooking skills, that's going to be an issue. But even then, if you do have great cooking skills and you're able to navigate that whole situation, like there comes a point where, you have to impart those skills to the your children right and again that can not happen where they have stuff going on oh he's doing sports she's doing sports they have this extracurricular thing or whatever it is or you know they have homework to do or whatever and and you just want to get the dinner done quickly after you've had a hard day in work whatever's going on like you know life is obviously hard um 
and these critical skills don't get imparted onto the next generation and you have people that are 16 17 18 19 and they've never cooked a meal in their life right so they've gone through you know roughly a quarter of their life having never cooked a meal you know and it can easily happen that these individuals have never cooked an actual meal i don't just mean you know they made a toasty or whatever um like they haven't actually cooked a substantial like family meal and then they go out into the world and they don't have these skills so obviously that's a huge education around nutrition thing that can lead to obesity because if you're left not being able to cook and you don't know how all these other like we'll call them soft skills around cooking and nutrition education like you don't know where to buy food you don't know how to do navigate that situation it's always been done for you um, and now you're out in the free world you're like okay like i'm just gonna have to get stuff that's quick and easy to get um, and cook because like can i bang it into the microwave that's all i can really do i can turn on the microwave great you know or oh, i can order from the local chinese or the chipper or the the pizza place or whatever it is the kebab shop whatever insert whatever fast food you know that's the only way they can get any nutrition and again that's not a great place to be in in terms of this obesogenic environment that we've created you know and then the final thing just on that which is somewhat related to the kind of the soft skills around nutrition and this is like education around money management um, and like you might be thinking like what what's that have to do with nutrition but obviously again you need to know how to budget accordingly to like people don't, aren't aware that you know it can be cheaper to get we'll call it good wholesome food and um, for cheaper than you would get you know fast food but obviously again we have to factor in all the stuff that we were just talking about and we'll further talk about in terms of like the time aspect and the food environment we'll get onto all those kind of things but obviously this does play a role to whatever extent in terms of your ability to have good nutrition you have to have good money management practices you have to be able to delay gratification you know and these are all soft skills or hard skills whatever you want to call them and um, that often get overlooked and do have a place in this overall um pathogenesis towards uh, obesity now to what extent like you could have great money management skills be a millionaire and still be obese like that's i'm not saying that's to be all and end all but obviously it does fit into this overall discussion of education around nutrition like you can have all the greatest education around nutrition but if you don't know how to manage your money like we're in a bad bad spot you know and and again this ties into quite a lot of the other thing things that we're going to touch on um, and obviously stuff that we're not going to touch on that obviously play into it. Like we could talk about jobs in your environment. Like if there's just no jobs, there's just shit jobs in your environment that don't pay well. It's like you can have all the best money management skills in the world, but you, know, you can only manage so much. Um, but uh, obviously that's kind of beyond the scope of what we want to talk about. So the education around nutrition, anything else you want to add to that? Well, just on the money management side of things, like it's also the case that like if you don't have much money, you don't have much to manage. And as a result, like your food budget can be severely limited. So I think like that's something that's always important to remember because it is very easy to just kind of get caught in the idea that, oh yeah, everyone obviously has this budget to eat the things I eat. Whereas that's just not always the case. And like a, a, a one way to think about that would be, you know, let's say you did only have 50 euros left 
at the end of the week, by the time, let's say you've bought everything else you needed to buy. Okay. Stuff, you've bought stuff for your kids. You needed to buy uniforms. You needed to pay the bills, pay the rent, etc. And you've got 50 euros left to spend on food. Like imagine that you're in a position where like you already really don't enjoy your life. Like your kids are kind of always giving you shit and stuff. And you're like, Oh God, like I just want to put a nice tasty meal on the table so that I can enjoy it. And so that the kids can enjoy it or get a takeaway each week or whatever. So the, the point there being that while you can manage your money and you can say, Oh, why don't people just buy the 19 cent cans of chickpeas? They're so healthy. Just eat those in a bowl. Like, Think about how that actually plays out in the real world. You know, it, it sounds it sounds like something that's manageable, particularly if you're someone who's like a personal trainer that has a background in bodybuilding. Like, but the reality is that like try and serve try to serve that up to to your kids. Like, it's it's not as simple. You know, so sometimes it is a case that like part of money management isn't necessarily directed towards just the resources that are going to be most most healthy but also those that might actually add a bit of pleasure to life as well which is completely fair you know 100 percent um so yeah anyway that's that's something it's pretty much beyond the scope like we're not a wealth generating podcast yet anyway um yes <laughs> but uh so yeah like obviously there's a load that goes into that and this is not the podcast to unpack all of that. Anyway, moving on. Um, so the next thing then is something that you would think, uh, especially personal trainers and the, the, the field that we find ourselves in, you think people would think about this a little bit more, but they don't. Um, and that is food availability and cost. And obviously this ties in with a lot of what we just said. Um, and there's two concepts that I want to introduce and perhaps Gary, you will explain what they are, if you will. Um, and these are food deserts and food swamps, right? Because these are two things that, again, if you come from, I uh, hate, hate when people say words like this, but if you come from a privileged background, um, like you may not even understand the realities um, of other people's upbringing in terms of what they've been exposed to or the environments that they find themselves in through no fault of their own, right? Now, obviously, sometimes it is true fault of their own, but again, that's that's a, a, a moral discussion or an ethics discussion or whatever you want to call it, um, and that's beyond the scope of this podcast. But um, people do find themselves in these food deserts and food swamps. So what are they, Gary? Yeah, so like... These are two, you've probably, you might've heard of food deserts. I think food, food swamps is a newer concept, but f food deserts are fundamentally um, areas with limited access to affordable and nutritious food. Okay. So that's the typical uh, definition. So, you know, if you're, if you're in an area that's, you know, very, very wealthy on average, let's say you might have, you know, these kind of like organic, like artisan stores that are, you know, available to you. And, you know, you've got the, the cafe and they sell all the kind of like vegan organic products and stuff. So it's, it's like part of the culture, but it's also like, you know, it's, it's bringing you what you want as well. Um, you know, you might have a, a Marks and Spencer's instead of an Aldi and, you know, these types of things. Um, not that you can't get healthy food in Aldi, but they're just examples of how that might differ from another environment um, where you might have, well, firstly, I should define a food swamp as well so a food swamp is basically where you have a higher density then of uh, establishments selling high calorie fast food okay so for example the local chipper the kebab shop 
a McDonald's, etc. That would be regarded as a food as a food swamp. Also, things like convenience stores where you've got a high density of things like chocolate bars and convenience snacks and sugar sweetened beverages, etc. So you can imagine that if you're in an area then that is uh, that has a high density of those fast food and convenience stores, and you've got a low density of places that are offering um, affordable, nutritious food then clearly that's not an environment that's conducive of the most healthful um, food choices. And that tends to be what you see is that like food swamps more than food deserts, it seems that food swamps tend to lead to um, higher rates of consumption of those types of um, high calorie, calorie dense foods and thus um, obesity or obesogenic behaviors as a result. And you, this, this is a challenge because what you do see is that you kind of you see that that food swamps are typically concentrated um, in areas of that are typically poorer or of low socioeconomic status. And if you look to um, the U.S. as an example, because it is kind of a good example for answering this type of question, you do see that they're more prevalent as well in areas and um, with higher densities of ethnic minorities. So this is one of those cases where you've actually got a lot of different variables that are that are acting together to lead to the emergent outcome of higher rates of obesity. So for example, if you've got low socioeconomic status, so on average people are less wealthy, there's more poverty, you've got uh, less access to uh, nutritious foods, let's say, but you've also got a high density um, of fast food restaurants. So, you know, you go down the chipper and there's a, a great deal, burger chips and a can of Coke for a fiver. Fantastic. You didn't want to cook this evening, this evening. You know, you don't have much money left for the weekend. You want to go for a few cans or whatever. Let's get the chipper, you know, handy, very simple, quick, done. So you've got that variable. But then what you've also got, which is something that, you know, I've heard raised by, um, people who are speaking for ethnic minorities in the US, where they'll say th things like um, the US dietary guidelines are very much um, based on the white people culture. Because, you know, if you look at if you look at uh, dietary patterns between um, black, blacks versus whites in the US is a very crude comparison, there are very clear differences in uh, dietary patterns. And as a result, the uh, dietary, the dietary guidelines are less concordant um, with what black Americans are typically more likely uh, to eat. So you've kind of got this weird situation in which there's both a chicken and an egg because if you say like if we were to talk about our own um, dietary preferences for example like we love burritos already you know so we love burritos if a burrito store comes near me I'm going to be likely to eat the burritos I already love burritos and it's going to reinforce my desire for burritos um, so there's both the um, prior dietary pattern and how that relates to the food that is near me and simply the presence of the food itself and how that relates to socioeconomic status. So overall, you've kind of got this causal web that ties together to increase prevalence of obesity um, along um, ethnic lines, along socioeconomic status lines. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely more complicated than, than people just, you know, not having motivation. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. And like, I drove across like a lot of America and like you would literally drive through areas like this, uh, especially in the kind of Midwest kind of area um, where it's like there's, there's, there's pretty much nothing and then you come to this built up area and there's maybe one 
like a convenience store. It's not even like a supermarket, um, like a Walmart or anything. It's just a kind of convenience store, even like a 7-Eleven maybe. Um, but then the only other places you could get food were like McDonald's, Burger King, whatever other fast food, you know? Um, and it's like, how, like if you live in that environment, like how, how, do you, how do you eat well? If, you know, the convenience store you can go to, like you're basically in both a food desert and a food swamp, you know, where it's like you, you don't have access to any good nutrition foods. There's no like, we'll call them higher end restaurants um, or, you know, food places that you can get, we'll call it higher quality food. And then all the places that you can get food, if you're just like, oh, I want to, you know, get a get food for dinner tonight. Um, and like the 7-Eleven didn't have any chicken because it's a fucking 7-Eleven. Um, like, what do you do? You go, okay, cool. I'm going to go down to KFC. Like, that's, that's the only other option I have, you know? So if you find yourself in that environment, like, it's very, very hard to navigate that and stay on track nutritionally. You know, like, yeah, okay, cool. Like I literally did navigate those situations because I have a high level of nutritional knowledge. So I was able to, you know, stay within my calories and macros while still eating those foods. But also like I'm a hundred odd, well, not, not male, but a hundred kilo male and who has quite a high caloric requirement. So I'm like, of course, it's going to be easy for me to fit these foods in and still stay relatively on track. But if you're not, uh, well maybe if you are a hundred kilo male when you shouldn't be um like that's it's going to be harder for you to navigate that situation you know and obviously again like it's not ideal food in terms of the food the quality of the food that you're eating but from a calories perspective it, it can be managed but it's just highly unlikely that you are going to be able to manage this effectively and if that's all you've got around you like what do you do and this is something that we'll come to when we touch on like society like what do you do then you go oh there's a, another town a two or three hour drive away from me that does have a, a bigger supermarket. I'm going to go there and get my food for the week. Cause that's what people would do. Like I, I talked to a few people there um, in these various places. Cause I like to chat shit. Um, but uh, you know, that's what they would do. They'd be like, okay, cool. I go to this other area to get food for the week. You know, well, again, what happens if you're on a Friday night, you didn't, they didn't have enough chicken for the week or beef or whatever it is that you're buying. Like your only other option is shit food. You know, and obviously it becomes increasingly hard, increasingly hard to manage your calories in that situation. Now, you might think, oh, well, that's America. It's completely different. I live in Ireland, England, Australia, I don't know, Dubai. Like we've listeners all around the world, right? Like you might be like, that's, that's not the same in my area. However, it is the same in various areas in uh, at least the, the Anglosphere. Um, so like it's happening. You just aren't aware of it. You know, maybe you do come from an area that you're like, you're, you're, you're hearing us talk about this and you're like, yeah, that's, that's like where I grew up. Like I remember when I grew up, like I, I live in Sandyford and where I, when I grew up, like it's not like it was, like it is now. Like it's been, again, a term I hate, but it's been gentrified now. Like the, the area, like we didn't have Dundrum town center, you know, and that's like, Oh, like we have all high end stuff. You know, we had like, like it was an industrial estate. It literally was an, like, I grew up in an industrial estate and people come to it now and they see these like high rise apartments and they're like, Oh, it's a really nice area. But like, I literally was on the, the edge of the fucking County, like of Dublin. Like there was barely any houses above me on the mountain. I basically live halfway up a mountain, you know? And they're all there. The only shops you could go to, like there was a, a crazy prices, which is kind of like a, a super value um, uh, like a smaller supermarket. And there was a, a super value. And, um, but other than that, it's like the only other places around you were like the chipper, you know, and 
like I think there was a kebab shop or something or the Chinese as well. You know, it's like, that's, that's the food you can get. You know, you can, you can definitely, especially if you have a car, drive to other areas that were more built up at the time. And um, like Nook Grove was an area. So that's people who are familiar with these areas, they'll know. And then obviously Stalorgan as well was another area that you could go to, but like we were in between those. So like, again, like I know from my youth, it was completely different. And now obviously it's been, been gentrified. Loads of people with higher wealth have moved into the area and, like Gary, you've been here. Like, there's there's more supermarkets. There's a, the town center that was like biggest in Europe, and um, like there's there's all these different things that have popped up that just weren't there in my youth, you know. And I know where you grew up, Gary, as well. Like, like it it was not even what it is now in terms of how built up it is, and in terms of the the food that you had access to. Like, I know you used to fucking go to McDonald's basically for your nutrition when you were growing up. All the time. <laughs> That's why you couldn't yeah, do like any push-ups at 16. <laughs> or, or why I became able to do them because I ate more McDonald's. And also, we should, we, should mention, we should mention, you were a professional dancer at that time. So I was, yeah, you know, pro. Um, but yeah, no, McDonald's is, is literally right next to my house. Um, a stone's throw away, but I'm very good at throwing stones. So, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's still pretty far away. Uh, but yeah, no, we used, to, we used to do that all the time. And it, it actually was so convenient because um, of the Eurosaver menu, like I would just get a cheeseburger, two euro, six nuggets, two euro, put a couple of nuggets um, into the cheeseburger. And that's literally four euro. And then you might have a fiver if you were given a fiver. Um, so then you might get a little hamburger on top of that as well. So it was pretty, pretty handy in that sense. Uh, but yeah, like obviously that was something that obviously drove my nutrition decisions because like when we were growing up, we would be playing soccer all the time for just like literally eight hours a day, or we'd be, I don't know, climbing because as you say, it wasn't as built, built up, but it was in the process of being built up. So we always had like building sites around my housing estate when I was growing up, but we were always like super, super active. Um, so as a result, despite the fact that we'd eat McDonald's regularly and stuff like that, whenever I got money, I didn't get as much, I didn't get money to go to the shop as much as a lot of my friends did, which was probably good for me in the end. Um, but like that was always there. And if that wasn't there, then it would have been the case that all, me slash all of my friends would have been more likely to just go home for lunch or go home for a snack. Whereas because it was so close, it was always really, really convenient. Whereas if you lived out in Glenflesk or something, which is just 15 minutes from Clarny, but it's, it's, it's more rural, then you wouldn't have those options. Like you wouldn't have the option to go to a fast food place. You'd, you might be lucky to find a store nearby, but unlikely, you know, a lot of the people I know from the country wouldn't have a, a, a store to walk to within, um, within walking distance, you know? So those things undoubtedly affected my childhood and undoubtedly affect them for a lot of other people as well. And again, it's, it's something that people don't think about that does clearly play a role in this, uh, we'll call it obesogenic environment that we find ourselves in, you know? And again, that's something that we will discuss in future episodes and a little bit more in one of these other ones and uh, these other points. Um, and then we actually did touch on that basically just there in terms of like these high calorie, low nutrition foods are generally cheaper. And that's, I'm putting that with a, like a little asterisk beside it because like you see these people where they go through like this, how is this cheaper? It's like, here's this amount of protein that you need and here's this carbohydrates <laughs> you need. And they literally compare like going to Aldi, all these soft skills that we just touched on in terms of they know where to shop, they know how to get the best deal, blah, blah, blah. But they rarely ever factor in the fact that this just took them three hours 
to go around these shops, get all these foods, prepare these foods when it literally takes you 15 minutes. If the, like you said, the McDonald's is a stone's throw away from you, literally take you five minutes to drive there. If even, you know, cause obviously you're not walking and, and then get your food, get your order. And it's put in your car. If it's a drive through um, and then you're gone back to your house, eating your food there all within 15 minutes no preparation, no whatever, no cleanup. You literally throw it in the bin, like, you know? So again, there's this clear differentiation in terms of those two environments that you can find yourselves yourself in. And so the fact that you have easy access to these high calorie, low nutrition foods, which are also cheaper in the, 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 the short term, the long term, I don't know what you want to think of it. And like, that's, that's obviously not a great situation to find yourself in. If you are trying to not be obese, right. Do you have anything else to say on that? further to that like low satiety foods are also generally cheaper you know and you would think it would be the opposite way in terms of like you would basically be paying for calories so like higher calorie dense food would be more expensive but like that's rarely the case Um, and that's obviously like because of the inputs also because of like stuff like subsidies like the the government gives and you know the overall food production system which is something we'll touch on in a second and like that's that's the situation that we find ourselves in. Like it's far cheaper to, I don't know, go in and get something that doesn't really make you feel full. Like literally you could eat a McDonald's and even though it's high in calories, like it's not very filling, you know, like it's not something that you, an hour later, you're like, geez, I'm still stuffed after that. You know, like it's, it's just not right. Like you could literally could have a 2000 calorie McDonald's meal and within two hours eat again. You know, it's not satiating, right? Whereas if you had 2000 calories of like Gary has mentioned, like kidney beans or chickpeas or something, first of all, you probably fucking shit yourself. But second of all, like you're probably going to be very satiated for days. Like you're just not going to want to eat, you know? So like that's, there's clearly a difference in terms of the foods you have available to you. And then also like, the way you interact with the food environment, but both like, I'm not absolving just your choice in this. Like there is obviously an element of choice, which is something we will discuss in future episodes as well. And, um, but like it, it's all these little barriers, but then also little incentives that play into it where, you know, we could say it's just an argument of choice, but in reality, it's like the, the environment is nudging you towards certain choices. Right. Do you anything else to say on that? Um, would now be an appropriate time to just just mention how that interacts with uh, your psychology slash neurobiology very briefly. Um, I will allow it. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, just just on the environment um, point, like Patty just mentioned there, that like you're fundamentally being nudged in a particular direction, whether you like it or not. So your response to food cues, to advertising, etc., your proximity to your nearest grocery store, all that sort of stuff, right? And there is different, there are inter-individual differences in your susceptibility to those cues, okay? Like this is an, it's an area of of research that's difficult to get like proper, like clear granularity on on it. But what you do see is that in studies uh, related to neuroimaging, so imaging of the brain, um, there are differences between how different people respond to food cues. And that can then predict responses um, in terms of weight loss or weight gain, um, feeding behavior, et cetera. And there's lots of different areas of the brain that 
correlate with feeding behavior and response to food cues, often areas related to reward and, and emotion. So places like the, the amygdala, the cingulate gyrus, the hypothalamus. Um, and then it'll, it'll, you've got all those limbic areas, but you've also got regions related to um, kind of higher order cognitive function that might override those emotional signals. And you don't have to worry about the details there, but what's worth noting is that um, in, in studies looking at obese individuals versus people of normal weight, you see things that are quite interesting when it comes to thinking about like decision-making, free will, personal responsibility, et cetera. Because what you can see is that even after a meal, when someone is already full, that they still remain like obese individuals remain more responsive to food cues than people at a normal weight. So even though we might look at a meal and say, you know, on, on, an, on a so-called objective level that we'd be saying, look, this, this meal has this level of satiating value because of its fiber content, um, its palatability, its protein content, its calorie content, etc. that the, it doesn't necessarily it's, it doesn't necessarily result in the same response from every individual. So some individuals might, you know, prior to the meal, first and foremost, have a different uh, response for liking of foods, but also desiring of foods, um, and that can then be remain kind of salient, you know afterwards when you're already should be full or you report being full like even if i finish a meal and i report that yeah i'm full after that meal i'm satisfied there still might be a difference in terms of how i'm responding to those food cues um, and how someone else is responding to those food cues so even though um you obviously have choice in the matter and you obviously are able to control your diet like we clearly do those things it's not necessarily the same for everyone. And as a result, this accounts for at least some portion of why certain individuals are going to be more susceptible to developing obesity in the obesogenic environment that we're all exposed to than other, under, than other individuals. And I think that is something that's important to understand because very often we do just kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, well, you know, I just prep my meals. That's all I do, you know, whereas it might be the case that you actually are just less likely to, to respond to food cues than someone else, along with other factors, of course. Yeah. And there's such inter-individual differences. And also just the, your response at different time points in your own life, in terms of like your response when you're absolutely shredded versus your response when you are, you know, I don't know, 20, 30% body fat. Like there are differences even in, in that, in terms of like, what I mean is like your body is not the same entity throughout the lifespan just on in terms of like this is obviously a discussion of like body fatness so even in terms of that like there are differences that occur so like if you're an individual who is eating like these high satiety foods like fruits vegetables you know protein um you're, you're getting all this in and you're in this semi-lean state we'll say like oh your visible abs or whatever you know um like that's a different environment than someone, like even if you ate the same foods as someone who was eating in this obesogenic way, like that's not to say that you have the same, we'll call it like neuroendocrine response to those food cues and um, to someone that is obese, you know? Um, and especially if you start layering on early childhood development and early childhood exposure and like changes in like the fucking GABAergic system as a result of like childhood trauma and whatever other stuff, like again, like that's, that's the real reason that I actually care about this stuff because I'm like, it actually fundamentally changes children and like, we'll get onto it um, in future podcasts. And, um, but when you actually look at the policies that people in, implement in, in, in and around this area, like 
in my mind, I'm like, the, if you just look after children, I'm like, it's basically like investing in the future because like they literally are your future. They're the future of the economy, the, the country, et cetera. Um, but then people implement policies that negatively impact children. And I'm like, this, if you do this when they're children, they're basically fucked for life. That's, again, my pessimism around this whole thing where I'm like, you know, if you get fucked up as a child, you're, you're, you're kind of on the back foot already you know um, and there's a few policies i can think of just off the top of my head which i'm just like this is actually just reckless like uh maggie thatcher who we will talk about in a future episode um they used to call her maggie thatcher milk snatcher because she, she wanted to cut the the uh the funding for giving milk to kids you know it's like this is the, like reckless stuff you know but anyway look, that's that's for a future episode um but yeah also the neuroendocrine the neurobiology stuff that's also for a future episode um but like it's a lot deeper than we're just talking about now. And it also brings in all these, like, um, we call them philosophical or moral debates um, and stuff that, again, like you, you don't think that your everyday actions or the everyday actions of other people influencing your life, do they actually influence your life? But then they start bringing up all these, you know, questions around free will and whether you are actually, you know, making your own decisions and stuff. But again, future episodes <laughs> um so uh yeah the next thing then um and again this goes into these kind of soft skills and also the environment around food um like fruit and veg goes off right so like processed food doesn't and that's 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 something that again you need to take into account with this whole food availability and cost like if you have a, a situation where you don't know how to prepare and extend the shelf life of these foods and you can easily buy i don't know frozen chicken nuggets and like there's like in certain circumstances you can see why people make the you know the the choices that they do because they're thinking like oh look i could literally get this fresh chicken here or whatever but like it's not going to be good to go in a week's time you know whereas i can get this huge bag of chicken nuggets and yeah they're breaded and whatever else it's obviously different but they'll last because i just bang them to the freezer take out a few when I need them, you know, where it's not the same as like, Oh, I got these chicken breasts and I'll take out a few when I need them. Like, yeah, you could say that that's the case. It's, it's very similar, but, uh, it's not really. Um, cause again, there's a whole like knowledge around how to process this food, how to, you know, extend the shelf life of this food, all those soft skills that we were talking about before. Right. Um, and we touched on these, these two, cause these also go into the, the food deserts and food swamps. But again, certain shops in your area and your ability or the, the transportation ability to those shops. Like that's obviously varies hugely across just Ireland, the country that we're in right now. And, um, but also England across the world, like obviously it's, it's hugely different if you live in London versus if you live up in fucking, I know Strathclyde somewhere, you know, like there's, it's a huge difference in terms of the actual environment you find yourself in. Um, and obviously that has impacts in terms of your overall health um, do you have anything else to add on to the food availability and cost side of things, Gary? Like, obviously, we're not touching on everything, but I just want to hit some, like, big key areas that people can kind of start thinking a bit more about. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Right. Now, the next one, and again, th these are two things. Well, the first one especially is something that, like, it's actually far more dull than most people make it out to be in terms of, the actual discussion of this and this is the topic of like fat shaming right and um, like people make it out on both sides of i'm not talking about just one individual like one side of the the equation like on both sides people make it out to be like 
oh, uh, if you do any little microaggression against fat people, it's fat shaming and that's toxic and whatever else. And then on the other side of it, it's like, oh, you should shame fat people because it'll lead to uh, better health outcomes. <laughs> and it's like, like let's read realistic. Like it's there's, the answer is probably somewhere <laughs> in between those those two uh, standpoints. Um, but the only thing I want to say on this is like fat shaming as a concept. Like again, we'll, we'll probably talk about this in future episodes because it's very interesting in terms of the social exper- experiment that is going on in terms of how people respond to the topic and how people then utilize that topic overall. But again, like we'll, we'll touch on it in future episodes. But the one thing I do want to say is that like, if you were, again, I'm, I'm, I think of the children because realistically, look, if you're over 12, I'm like, you're already fucked. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, that's my mindset. So I'm like, this is obviously something that we need to look into for a properly functioning society um, with the, the, the children aspect in mind because that's all I really care about. Um, like this, if you are someone that has been exposed to trauma, whatever fuck else in your childhood and you use food as a coping mechanism and then you are fat shamed and your only coping mechanism is food, like you can clearly see how that leads to a situation where you get further into this obesogenic environment because you don't have any coping mechanisms apart from emotional eating to deal with that so how is fat shaming going to benefit that individual right and so yeah that this obviously does go into the the overall discussion do you have anything to say on the topic of fat shaming because like we're going to talk about it on a future episode but i just want to say that it is in this whole obesogenic timeline yeah like fat shaming and or weight stigma generally like is something that obviously is worth bringing into this discussion because you'll hear some people you know make claims that well no we should just be shaming because that's what we did with tobacco and everyone stopped smoking whereas like if you actually look at tobacco policy it's it's far more complicated than that and and far more interventionist than anything related to obesity has been so you should try and understand tobacco policy first um but in addition to that like like you do see that like like weight stigma can have deleterious effects because an example would be like if you're let's say um seeking some sort of medical care and you know you've got some sort of health complaint and your doctor says that oh no it's just the result of uh, your weight you should lose weight first then that's potentially um serious for your health because it might have been a totally independent problem that could have been treated and managed well um which obviously isn't good medical care and the difficult thing then is that people may not be willing to seek care again and that's where things can become um a bit messy it can obviously also happen as a personal trainer like train a lot of trainers listen to this and you know if you're someone who's constantly outspoken about how you know, people who are obese are just lazy and useless and they don't care about themselves. And you're just like thinking that's going to be a positive thing. Then obviously they're less likely to then reach out to you. And if you're a competent professional, then it's a very clear example of how that person isn't able to actually move forward and be successful. Um, But in addition to then like the things that you said, that it can be a stressor in and of itself. And it can, as you say, um, bring up past trauma potentially if someone has been bullied throughout their life for their weight. Um, or it just might be a consideration where, you know, someone feels really shit about their weight. Um, they're, you know, disgusted when they look in the mirror or whatever. And that can potentially then feed into a kind of a cycle of um, like it, it 
there's obviously a lot of debate in the literature on this food addiction or things related to food addiction like the reward that comes from food whether or not you want to call it to call it an actual addiction is up for debate but if you're more responsive to food cues and food reward um and that's one means of of dealing with that and then that's very then the 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 fat shaming and weight stigma are very much tied in with that so tied in with the kind of stress response and then with the um the act of of overfeeding itself so so yeah it's definitely not as simple as just not um or as just just as shaming people to change their behavior but on the other side of things you also don't necessarily want to sit to go to the extreme that some people do and like claim that there are no deleterious effects of obesity um, in an attempt to not fat shame people because that's just not telling the truth and i i i don't i i see very few cases in which withholding the truth and therefore lying to people is a is a good thing you know i couldn't agree with you anymore right anyway it's an incredibly dull conversation but we will have it in future because there's a few things that people are exposed to um in society social media whatever um, and hopefully like again we'll discuss it in the future but anyway the other thing then and this in, in in my mind is actually a far far more interesting phenomena that you you notice and this is fat betterment stigma right or you could put it in terms of like fit shaming right so like you, you see this where individuals who were previously overweight or obese and they go out and you know we'll say try to better themselves in terms of their their cardiovascular risk, their obesity risk, whatever. They, they try to get healthier, right? And then they lose some weight. And then individuals basically, you know, cannibalize them in terms of they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you lost that weight. I always respected you when you were uh, overweight or you had more weight on your body, blah, 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 right? Um, and you're like, this is actually reckless. These individuals are trying to better themselves. And I thought we were all about body acceptance and this individual clearly is happier in their new form in terms of they've lost some weight and um, and they've they've done this as a task that they, they wanted to undergo it's not like you know they i don't know had cancer and they were losing weight as a result you know and um, it's like this is this is something that they've thought enough about thought enough thought highly enough about that they wanted to go out and achieve and then their peers in society who would have been giving them accolade before and um, because they carried more weight now we're like oh my god i can't believe you did this to us like the the one that comes to my mind is adele now i literally have no idea who the fuck adele is um but i i do know that she got a huge like pushback in terms of she lost weight then came out with a few like photos i think it was on her social media or instagram or something yeah. and got a huge backlash in terms of people saying like i'm never listening to your music again and i can't believe you you were a symbol to all of us women who were bigger i can't believe you did this to us and i'm like this is actually reckless because you see this in just society like obviously we're in the fitness industry and you see this a lot like you'll talk to individuals who are you know fitter than normal and they get this kind of fit shaming in terms of people like oh i wouldn't want to look like you you're too shredded or you look better when you have a little bit of weight on you and all these kind of things you know and it's like like you wouldn't say those things to a fatter individual or a bigger individual be like oh you'd look better if you lost some weight you know like obviously that does happen to individuals but it always like consistently the general population says it to fit people however my opinion on it is kind of like look realistically i don't care you're shredded who cares like <laughs> you know like you're getting all the the health outcomes from that and like yeah okay cool your peers are like oh i prefer you with a bit more weight on you or whatever and like 
literally their opinion in my mind anyway i'm like i don't care right but obviously again i can see how that would affect some individuals a bit more but this fat betterment stigma like it it doesn't make sense to me at all but again maybe that's just my mindset nothing to say on that gary no i suppose the only thing i would add would be um yeah, this actually, this actually did come up. Well, it's kind of related. When we posted our podcast a couple of weeks ago, or I suppose it was the last episode of the podcast, was it? Where we were talking about our, I, the quote basically on, on the, the, the podcast image that I put up on Instagram. I think it was obesity and overweight uh, prevalence has been on the rise. You know, why is that? Something along those lines. Um. And and the response the, the response I got from a good friend actually a very smart friend as well um, she was basically just asking where where does this where where does this fit in with um, the idea of loving your body um, as if like we can't kind of acknowledge that there that this is a problem that on that on average I think we can all agree and I like I think that anyway that if, if a population is becoming more overweight and obese that's a net negative thing. I think that's a fairly reasonable statement. Um, however, you know, she was asking, you know, how does this fit in with kind of the idea of of loving your body and, and self love and all that sort of stuff? And I guess my perspective on on that, that like, firstly, I don't think that like I know this is kind of harsh, but I don't think that loving your body is actually that important. Like, I think that I think that sometimes what can happen is people actually put too much emphasis on their bodies and that can be pathological. So I just want to make clear because I think that's something that comes up a lot in the fitness industry. And it's often on the opposite side of things that when people get lean, they become totally obsessed with their body and they forget that there's more to life than just that. So if anything, I'm kind of like body neutrality. Like, yeah, if you like your body, that's great, but you don't have to, you know, (laughs) hopefully there's more to you in your life than just, you know, how you look. Um, I'm kind of of that opinion. Um, But also like you can, you can still very much uh, be appreciative um, of your body and have good body image while having the intention um, of uh, reducing your weight of losing body fat. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean that you're, saying that you hate yourself because you want to uh, go ahead and lose weight. So if you're in a position where you're saying to yourself, you know, I'm actually comfortable with how I look. I love my body. I accept it as it is. um, And I don't want to lose weight. All my health markers are in a great place and I'm happy out. More power to you. Absolutely no desire for you to change. Doesn't matter to me. But if you're in a position where like you've come to love your body, but you have noticed that there are side effects associated with excess body fat that you have, then that's something that you do have to still consider. And they're, they're separate con- constructs in my eyes, like the, whether or not you love your body and whether or not your body is associated with um, good or bad health outcomes, they're interrelated for sure, but they still are separate constructs, I think anyway. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, now the next thing then is <clears throat> this kind of social pressure to socialize through food and drink. Like I know in Irish culture, that's a, that's a big thing. Um, like that's that should be pretty obvious how that plays into this obesogenic environment if the only way you can have a social life is to go out and consume food or and or drink and um, like obviously that's not like you you can't like it's if you can't dissociate those two like imagine not being able to see your friends unless you're consuming calories like that's that's obviously not a great place to be in but again that's how a lot of society is structured these days and um, and again 
probably something we'll talk about in future. And we touched on this one as well before um, earlier on in terms of like parental modeling, in terms of how you were raised or how you raise your own kids. And this obviously has a, a place in this whole uh, obesogenic you know, timeline. Um, and again, like it should be fairly obvious how that occurs. And obviously that's a multifactorial issue in and of itself. Um, and it's not to say like, your bad parents or your parents were bad if they led you to a situation where you were overweight, you know, like, again, it, it could be any number of factors that led to that situation. Like maybe you were a picky eater and they were just fucking tired after work, you know? Um, but anyway, that's, that's obviously a point to understand in this whole causation of obesity and um, motorized transport. And I mean this in two ways, like, first of all, you can have a lack of motorized transport, so you can't get to shops. You can't, do your shopping in good areas, but also in the other way, in terms of a lot of individuals have more access to motorized transport. So they don't walk anywhere. Like people literally get like a thousand steps per day, you know, so their non-exercise activity thermogenesis is just very low. Right. And if you have a commute to work, you know, an hour commute to work, then you have a sedentary job, which, you know, less than 20% of jobs in current society are physically or require physical activity and if you have a commute to that and back and you sit at a desk all day like physical activity is quite low you know and that's obviously part of this whole situation it's not just the food side of things it's also your ability to exercise you know and do you have anything to say on that Gary? no cool the next one then like this is also a contentious one because this is one that goes on both sides of the aisle and that is like in terms of like politics and that's like a lack of jobs in the area and that can be due to poor policies that have been enacted by government and um, or it, it literally this is again gets to these the heart of these arguments that we have in society like it could literally be to you know foreigners willing to do your job for cheaper right so people are like oh they took our jobs in terms of like people are coming to the area and they're willing to do these lower paid jobs for cheaper and that drives down the wages in that area but also then on the other side of things in terms of like globalization and um, you know jobs in the area are just outsourced to uh, another country that'll do it for cheaper you know um, and again like this is not just shifting the blame and being like those those foreigners and um, i'm just saying that obviously has a place in this overall discussion and obviously it's been politicized even though like if you go through history and you look at different political parties and their beliefs throughout history like they are not aligned with where they currently have those beliefs even like 10 20 30 years ago you know and um, like for example labor used to be really anti-immigration because like all, most labor governments or most labor parties or more left aligned parties used to be really anti-immigrant because they understood that it takes away jobs from the people that they supposedly represented in terms of like union workers. Like if you get people to come in and they do your jobs cheaper, like that's like, that goes against the people that are going to be voting for those, those, those parties or those policies. Right. And obviously that's different than the current labor or left style governments that or parties or whatever, you know, that we, we, we currently think of. Right. And, um, but obviously is again, like it's the right, the right i suppose like or conservative style governments like there's this whole shift of like basically what's we'll a quasi-racist um or racist ideologies that are uh laid upon those conservative style individuals like people call them racists and um, even if they just bring those topics up um, and obviously like there's potentially racialized history there as well and um, but also they are the ones that encourage globalization because 
it was a freer market then and they had easier access to capital and again it's like this then they could turn around and say like oh those foreigners are coming to take our jobs and it's like your party or your policies are the reason that there's no jobs in these areas because you sold them out you know and so again it's both sides of the aisle so i know that doesn't jive well when people listen to this and they go i want them to make a fucking call out for the left or i want them to make a call out for the right and we're basically saying that both sides were shit but anyway <laughs> um the next thing then is do you want to have actually do you have anything to say on that because again like it's stuff that we're going to talk about in future just regarding your your point your actual point your your point for the listener is that obviously if there are less jobs and those jobs are less well paid that ties in with the socioeconomic relationship with obesity i presume that was the point yeah that was the point yes um yes naturally enough um but anyway so we live in uh, the same environment as our or sorry we don't live in the same environment as our ancestors and this is obviously something that is discussed like a lot in we'll say the ancestral movement the the paleo community you know like the it, it takes far less energy to get food in this day and age um, versus obviously previous in history when you had to go out and slay an animal or gather food. Um, and then also we buy far more processed food than we did 30 or 40 years ago. And again, like this is a question that we'll, we'll explore in future. It's like, is it processed food that is the cause of obesity? And again, obviously it's one of these causes that plays into this whole fucking role. Right. And then this is also a, a topic that, you know, it's rarely discussed. Um, and that is activity deserts. Um, like there's nowhere to exercise in your area, you know, um, like there's no gyms, there's no sports clubs. Like the area doesn't have like walkways. Like I know you go down to like rural Ireland, like you try to go for a walk. It's like, well, where are you going to go for a walk? Like say it gets dark at 4 PM here now and you try to go for a walk. It's like, you're walking on literally these country roads with no footpath, with no lights, you know? So it's like, like, how are you, like you literally have to time your, exercise and i mean just like your daily like neat your non-exercise activity thermogenesis in terms of your steps and um, with the fucking solar cycle and then also with the fact that there's no fucking paths on the road and then there's no lights you know so again like you can, and, and it's always raining that that's again what i was going to go on to as well it's like you can also have cultures again or it's just i shouldn't say cultures like countries that you know it's snowing it's raining it's excessively warm like you know um, like all of these things, they, they play into the obesity epidemic um, in terms of, you know, you just don't have the ability to exercise, you know, like people, again, like you say, you live in a warm country and you're like, oh, that will solve all your issues. But it's also very, very hard to exercise when it's like 40, 50 degrees Celsius out, you know, um, like you just get so tired so quickly. And like, obviously, if you train in an air conditioned gym, it's like, oh, great, it's, it's fine. But that's not obviously available to everyone, right? So obviously this activity deserts, this is an issue. And again, it's access to gyms, access to sports. If you just don't, if they're just not in your area, like what, what are you to do? Like, obviously again, you can buy equipment and have it in your house, but like, what if you live in an apartment what are you going to do? Like there's, it's hardly likely that you're going to buy 200 kilos worth of gym gear and then fucking be doing your deadlifts and end up fucking, bolting through the floor to your fucking neighbor below you like you know um so again the your overall access to activity stuff you know it plays a role in this whole obesity epidemic do you mind to say on that guy no um there's one that i have here just because we were talking about and like the environment in terms of like 
cold, heat, etc. And like, I really don't think this is a huge thing, but you will often see it brought up. And that's like, like we don't get cold anymore in terms of most people live in like heated environments and like people start going on and doing these like hypo mechanistic hypotheses in terms of it's like, all oh, that leads to less brown fat. And you know, that's less, uh, like thermodynamically um, active and like you burn less calories as a result. And like, realistically it's fucking meaningless, but maybe it plays a very, very small role in this whole thing. Um, But I really don't think it warrants further. Like it's, it's a cool like biochemistry experiment type thing in terms of understanding the difference between brown fat and, you know, uh, just white fat, adipose tissue. And, and like it's just the mitochondrial differences and etc. But like realistically in the real world, in terms of what this actually means, nah, it's fucking meaningless. Do you understand that, Gary? No, I agree. Um, then two more things. Um, some cultures are like feeder cultures. And what I mean by that, it's like, again, not just to, to kind of further the point that we basically socialize with food and drink. Like some cultures, they make you eat all the food, right? Like, it's well known, especially if you're Irish, it's like an Irish mammy will be like, Oh, eat all the food on your plate. And like, you have to finish all the food on your plate, you know? And maybe this is like coming back from a fucking famine mentality or whatever, but it's the case that you have to finish your food on the plate. And this obviously ingrains beliefs or habits that you finish the food on your plate, even though it could be excessively calorically dense for what you actually need. But again, you finish the the food on your plate. And like, if you've ever been in like a, an Arab household, um, or like even Persian or whatever, like they're very much feeder cultures as well in terms of like they would see it as, you know, almost an insult if you finished your plate. You know, it's like, oh, like if you finish your plate, they assume that you want more. Like you're, you you weren't full. Like they, they want you to leave food on your plate because then they know that you got enough, right? Because obviously like they come from a culture where they're basically nomadic travelers. Well, a lot of them are like the Bedouin and stuff. Um, like they're, they're nomadic travelers and like they would rely on the hospitality of other individuals um, you know, when, when they're traveling. So they, they have this culture where, you know, you want to make sure everyone that comes to your house is very well fed. Um, so again, they have that whole culture going. So again, like if you're in cultures like that and the, the way they have uh, their food culture set up, um, you can be in a more obesogenic environment as a result because you combine that, imagine being in like a feeder culture and then also having like hyper palatable, you know, high calorie foods, like that's a recipe for disaster, right? In terms of obesity, right? Um, and again, this is another one and um, this next one and um, that again, you see it put out a lot or not a lot, but like discussed sometimes in terms of like mechanistic stuff. Um, and that is that like, we don't really have infections or parasites or worms or whatever anymore, you know, and they obviously contribute to caloric burn in the body <laughs> um, even though like maybe it's not the, the way you want it to um, and like literally people have done that in the past like they literally would get you know parasites and they would lose weight they would use it as a weight loss tool right and um, like tapeworms and shit um, so uh, like we don't have that anymore thankfully enough like I, I don't really want tapeworms um, but uh, obviously that does play into the overall environment and this is stuff that like it doesn't get discussed like nearly enough because we, like you, if you grew up after the fucking eradication of tapeworms, like, <laughs> like obviously they're not eradicated, but like it just was never a concern for you. Like you don't really think about it, but like throughout our entire evolution, it probably played a huge role. And like you see people as well, especially when they talk about 
like ancestral diets and they talk about like you see this a lot in the uh, carnivore community when they're like oh my super high cholesterol levels are perfectly fine because you know it's ancestrally that's the way they would have been but like you're they're not living in the ancestral environment like those all those ancestral environments they would have had significant parasitic load which we know leads to reductions in cholesterol right and because you're fighting off infection it's like this is like you're not comparing apples to apples here right? Because you don't live in the same environment. And as we've talked about before, like diet is not uh, an a la carte menu. You don't just pick and choose. It's like, you can't isolate things very well with the diet. Like obviously some things you can, but it takes a hell of a long time to actually fucking isolate the signal from the noise. Like just think about now, like our ability to isolate the signal of saturated fat and its role in like heart disease. Like people are still like, oh, we don't have conclusive studies on this, you know? So like your ability to distinguish signal from noise is very, very low with nutritional science. And even though like, again, like there is, we do have quite a lot of a body of evidence for various things. Um, but people will literally just pick and choose what they believe in terms of the diet. It's like, oh, the diet should look this way because of this one isolated thing. And it's like, you're looking at something in isolation that didn't occur in the past and you're using an ancestral model, you know? My dad always tells me I've got worms anyway, so it's still very much in the colloquial um, language. Anytime I, I eat one of my mother's dinners, which is just absolutely absurdly large, and because she is a feeder, like she's the perfect example, um, my dad's just like, you actually have worms. You're disgusting. Yeah, but he's British, so we don't listen to him. Fuckers. Um, anyway, then the next thing then, and we're, we're nearly there, so bear with us. And I'm not going to get too deep into this one because there's actually a, a far larger discussion on this. And again, it's something we'll get into the future, but uh, the overall food system has changed and that's from the farm level to the, I'll say at the multinational company level, right? Like the whole food system has changed. So we're like, we'll do an actual podcast on that rather than just going like, let's pick out a few different things. Like it's completely changed in what it was in, in the past. So Again, it basically leads to a situation where you incentivize poor choices, both because of market forces and government forces. Um, but again, that's something we'll, we'll discuss in future. Um, then obviously, then this is like, these next two are the ones that most people will focus on in, in terms of how we look at this obesity epidemic. And that is energy balance. Like that's, this clearly plays a role in this whole obesity timeline in terms of you know, if you want to not be obese, you have to eat less and move more, right? And as we said, like, that's obviously influenced by a huge number of other factors, like we've discussed throughout this entire podcast. Um, but ultimately, that's what it comes down to. It's just an energy balance equation. And there, that is slightly further modified by like genetics in terms of you might have different genetic polymorphisms that cause you to, you know, react to different diets differently and you know move less or move more or whatever else and um, or have like down regulation of metabolism up regulation whatever and then obviously there's also a, a hormonal side to this energy balance equation and that's both controlled genetically epigenetically and then your overall environment as well um but again this is stuff that we've we've talked about before and anyone who listens to this podcast you know you're probably well versed in terms of calories in calories out in terms of the 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 way that factors into the obesity 
epidemic and you know body fatness overall do you mind to say on that Gary? Yeah, just to be clear to people, like the whole point of discussing everything else up to now was that it could in some way influence energy balance. <laughs> so like being poor or of low socioeconomic status doesn't add body fat to you, okay? It, 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 there, there are mediators between that um, and, and energy balance and, and thus uh, the addition uh, of body fat. And, and like that actually is something that, it seems really obvious, but it is worth noting because what sometimes happens in like in nutrition studies, especially like studies that aren't carried out by people who are like, they do nutrition science themselves. They basically overcorrect for things. So for example, if we were to say, oh, you know, uh, eating ultra processed foods, uh, it doesn't cause obesity because when you control for calories, there's no change in body weight. Like, that's clearly very dumb because it acts via increasing your, your calorie intake. And you see the same thing um, with uh, a lot of the, the cholesterol research. Like, for example, people will say um, saturated fat has, has no effect um, on heart disease once you control for cholesterol levels. But again, you shouldn't control for cholesterol levels because they're the mediator. So with all of these factors, if you're ever reading research on them and how they relate to obesity, remember, you don't want to control for calorie intake because that's the mediator. Now, that's not always the case because sometimes you do want to control for that because, for example, if we were asking, does sugar independently increase body fat independent of its effects on calorie intake, then that's actually a different question. Um, and the answer is no. It, it's all via the increase in calories. So there you go. 100%. And then just further to this and just to kind of wrap up um, this topic and then just touch on a few extra things on top of that. <clears throat> is your overall habits like the food environment we find ourselves in society we find ourselves in like these effectively serve to reinforce habits and if you have good habits and you find yourself in a a, a community a society whatever that allows you to reinforce those habits like they can be anti-obesogenic and then also obviously they can be obesogenic in terms of the habits that you get reinforced in your society your community whatever can lead you to struggle to control your weight like yeah it's still within your willpower to control it but it's always going to be a an uphill struggle and obviously again willpower is something that we all supposedly have and so that's something that obviously plays into this overall obesity epidemic overall and again most discussions of it are incredibly dull and in terms of they're basically arguing different like people are just arguing across each other rather than actually arguing the the correct points and maybe that's something we'll look into overall and then further to that like you have like psychological ambivalence um like the people are just they want to change but either they don't know how or you know they're like oh i'll start on a monday or i'll start i'll do in the future like they're, they're they are basically ready to make the change but they never actually do um and obviously again that comes from various other factors as well the next one then as well is your your self-esteem like if you have very poor confidence in your ability to succeed just in anything right and again that can be because of your culture early life experiences whatever the fuck right and that leads to a situation that makes you not even want to try you know because you don't want to fail and you have such low confidence in your ability to succeed that you see failure as the more likely outcome like that's literally like that's completely different than my mindset for example like i literally will do something and i'll be like even if i fail i'm like that's just leading me to the point where i'll be able to succeed right but other individuals come at that 
whatever event topic whatever and they'll be like oh even if i fail or if i fail that's you know catastrophic and i'm in the worst position possible now like i'm a failure right and that further reinforces the fact that they're a failure and then their self-esteem and confidence is lowered and as a result they just don't want to try things in future because doing nothing is a safer option than being a failure right and again i've said it to multiple clients it's like the, the goal is to teach you and the goal is to get you to the end point. Like there's a lot of learning that goes along within that, you know? And um, so you have to try and be willing to fail and repeatedly fail until we find the right methods and the right tools and the right, whatever to actually navigate the situation that you find yourself in. But again, if you don't have someone guiding you down the path, you know, like it, it can be incredibly hard. Do you have anything else to say on that Gary, before I rhyme off the last two? Nope. And then the final two is stress and sleep or lack of sleep. And again, we've touched on those previously on the podcast, so you can go back and listen to them. Um, and obviously we've, we've, we've just talked about it in general and they are big, they are part of the, the big four in terms of exercise, nutrition, stress management, and sleep. Like they're the big four things that you kind of have to look after to be healthy. Now, obviously there's a huge amount more that goes into it, but those are the kind of fundamental things that you kind of need to, to look at. Right. So Gary, there's clearly a lot of stuff that goes into this obesity causing or this obesity causation. I don't even want, know what to title this, this, this whole thing, but there's clearly a lot that goes into it. Yes, absolutely. And I think the best way that you can go and get a comprehensive understanding of this, because like fundamentally what we're doing is just shooting loads of stuff at you. And it doesn't seem that coherent, to be honest, as much as we've tried. Um, and, you know, because there's so many different things that are related to the end product of obesity emerging with rapidly increasing prevalence in society. If you look at the... Um, the UK, the UK Foresight Initiative produced an obesity systems map in around 2008, I think. But it's a, it's a really good way of looking at how all of these different um, variables interact because it's visual and it lets you kind of see the bigger picture. And there are a lot of things that go beyond what we have discussed today uh, because for every for everything that we've brought up and mentioned, there are many other things that have potentially contributed to that um, and and result from that as well. So overall, I think that what you need to understand is that when we consider causation, that there are multiple levels of causation. So like fundamentally, like the end of the line is excess energy. Okay. So it's, it's an energy surplus. Like that's fundamentally the mechanism by which um, all of these different factors um, become uh, obesity in the end. So it's the mechanism that contributes to the increase in body fat. However, just understanding the mechanism and that kind of that most proximal cause of eating more and moving less, that doesn't actually tell you about all of the different things that have contributed um, to that. So you do have to kind of increase to a higher level of analysis when you're thinking about these problems. It does. You don't necessarily have to on an individual level, like for example, if you're a personal trainer, you don't need to consider how economic policies have affected the food environment. Like 
it's it's interesting to be aware of that but fundamentally what you have control over is you know what you advise your client to do the exercise you have them do the nutrition advice you give them advice related to modifying their food environment for example uh, like you can control your home food environment you can control depending on your financial resources and what you have uh, near you where you shop you can control what aisles you enter um, within the store like so you do have control over things um, and I think knowing what is within an individual's control when you are a personal trainer is definitely helpful. I do think as well that there's an interesting thing here as well that potentially accounts for why a lot of trainers, um, definitely including myself in this, in this box as well, why you end up with a bias towards thinking that everyone should be able to do what you can do. And that's because if you're working with people as a trainer, you are self-selecting for people who are one, they've made the step to try and better their health and fitness. They've got the financial resources to pay for it. They've got means of transport to getting to your gym. They don't have other commitments that stop them from having that time available. So you're already self-selecting for a small portion of the population. And as a result, if you're not exposed to the rest of the population, you don't see how they live, you don't get the common barriers reported, then you have a skewed perception of the barriers that are in the way for people because you've only helped people solve problems within the context that they're already actively seeking to make change and they're already got those resources that I mentioned. So that is something that's really important to be aware of as a trainer. Yeah. And this comes down to like, like the reason we wanted to record these podcasts um, is because this both helps us in terms of clarifies our messaging, our thinking, because, you know, we have to think deeper about these things when we're trying to be coherent and, you know, convey a message and um, which, you know, that's what we like to do. Um, but also it helps the people that we want to influence in terms of the individuals that are, you know, trying to better their own health. And, um, but also the individuals that are trying to better other people's health in terms of like personal trainers. I know a lot of like healthcare, uh, in the, healthcare workers and um, listen to this so again like they might have been exposed to different things and different thought processes so we want to cover a lot of bases with this but as an individual trying to manage your own obesity risk or own health in general like half of this stuff is in your control like the physiology is kind of like 50 50 whether it's in your control like some of it is some of it's not like obviously that's impacted by your habits and all the stuff that we've been talking about you know your individual physical activity like that's within your own control and again obviously that's influenced with all the things that we've been talking about and discussed throughout this and um, you know your individual psychology like again it's somewhat in your control and um, your individual food consumption, again, somewhat in your control. Um, but those are the things that you can work on, right? And that's the stuff that we, like, we work on when we're coaching individuals or advising individuals in terms of you know, how to navigate the food environment, how to navigate the exercise environment. And ultimately, that, comes down, that, that stuff is the stuff that we generally tend to recommend. And most personal trainers will recommend or healthcare providers will recommend. They'll be like, find some sort of physical activity that you can do and do it right like they that's that's basically it you just have to find some sort of way to burn some calories throughout the week could be walking could be swimming could be i don't know what the fuck you have in your area but you're gonna have to find something it literally could be walking up and down the stairs in your house you have to find something you know like obviously we have a bias towards resistance training because we think it's fucking great and we also have a bias towards brazilian jiu-jitsu because we think it's great but like realistically at the end of the day i could not care less what an individual does in terms of their activity as long as they are getting some activity in right you know the individual psychology stuff again there's a whole host of things that 
could go into this, but you're going to have to find some way to get your psychology aligned so that you're not, you know, have this ambivalent approach to weight loss. You have to find a way to increase your self-esteem and self-confidence. And again, that's beyond the scope of this podcast, but you're going to have to find a way. And then finally, you're going to have to find a way to manage your food consumption. You know, you're going to have to navigate the food environment that you find yourself in, and you're going to have to control for calories in some way, right? Now, I wish there was more that I could give you at an individual level to be like, here's this one weird trick or this one thing that you could do to, you know, stop your obesity risk dead in its tracks. You know, unfortunately there isn't, right? Because a lot of this stuff is outside your control, like the physical activity environment. Like you don't have control over where you live unless you have, you know, lots of money. Like if you were just born in an area, like you were just born there, you know, and you don't have control over the food production system. And yeah, you could argue that you can just buy different foods or whatever, but as we've discussed, it's not always that easy. You know, you don't have control over food promotion. Like, yeah, okay, cool. You could say, you know, get off your phone. You could say, don't watch TV. But even if you walk down the street while you're trying to increase your activity, you walk by a bus stop and they have, you know, whatever candy, whatever sweets, whatever, chocolate bar plastered up on that or you know uh finger licking good kfc mcdonald's whatever other slogans they have plastered up on that so like you you can't do that and then even when you walk into a store it's like the way the way they have it set up is like you know tries to get you to eat these different foods you know they all these kind of things they that you can't control the food promotion system is basically what i'm saying you also can't control to a large extent unless you move obviously your access to food like we've discussed food swamps food deserts all that kind of stuff. Like again, it's, it's a hard thing to navigate. You can't change social psychology. Like, yeah, okay. You could say like, you need to get rid of all your friends um, because they're, they're dead weight. They're just holding you back. But again, that's, that's not usually a realistic way to navigate things. Um, and you obviously can't change like societal structures um, to a large extent. Like obviously you can by voting and, you know, doing whatever else, but like you're by voting changing your vote you're not going to change the fact that irish mothers are feeders you know like that's that's not going to change that so like a lot of societal structures you're just not going to change yep right and then just to end this podcast i basically just want to throw out a few things just to get the gears turning in your head for future episodes like uh, that's basically what this whole episode has been to like get the gears turning in your head and thinking about this stuff a little bit more but i want you to start thinking about solutions to the the things that we've discussed because while it's well and good to figure out all of the different inputs that lead to this situation like we ultimately want to look at how do we guide policy how do we guide our individual choices etc to a position where you know, society is back on track in terms of our obesity risk, et cetera, right? So, so uh, one of the solutions, which is often put out, is like changing the free market, getting more government intervention or more regulation. That's seen as a solution, right? But again, people would counter that and say, you know, how do we stop the, the, the tyrannical state from you know, making poor decisions or becoming ever more tyrannical, like big government is bad, etc. Right. Um that's again, counter. We have to navigate that situation. Like where, how, where's the solution there? Right. And um, like, again, like who's to say the government will get it right when they've gotten taxes and subsidies and whatever else wrong multiple times before. Right. So again, it's not like they're infallible and they get the right decision all the time. Right. Um, And again, we obviously especially don't want these decisions if we're going to regulate the free market. We don't want these decisions to 
negatively impact the poor more, right? Like we basically don't want this to be a tax on the poor because we're saying that people in this lower socioeconomic status are disproportionately affected by the obesity, uh, environment, obesogenic environment that we find ourselves in, right? So again, it's, it's a hard thing to navigate. And I just want you to be thinking about if you were in government, what would you do? You know, just that's what I want you to kind of be thinking about going forward with these discussions, right? And then you also have to account, like look into that in terms of what you do and how you change the food environment. Those that end up making food cost more, right? Just in general. And is that something that you would be willing to vote for, right? If you were to be like, right, we're going to make the food supply more expensive um, to solve the obesity epidemic. First of all, that's going to be a tax on the poor, but would you be willing to pay more for your food or would that incentivize you to eat less food? Right. Again, I just want you to be thinking about this kind of stuff, right? Maybe you just go, it's a tax on lower quality food that we, we, we have, you know, like it's like McDonald's gets taxed or something like that. Right. Um, again, I just want you to be thinking of what would you do if you were in government? Right. And now I know a large contingent, no, I should say a large, a portion of our, um, viewership, um, would be like less regulation, is the answer, right? And I'm definitely economically right. So, you know, in a lot of circumstances, I would be definitely in favor of less regulation. However, you know, people are not making good decisions on their own, right? Um, And like less regulation in the advertising space, like that's probably not going to result in better diets, right? So if you are in favor of less regulation, like what would that actually look like, right? is it just a question of more personal accountability? Like you could argue that, oh, well, people aren't being personally accountable to their actions. So that's the issue that we need to resolve. And again, if that's what you think, and that's the solution you are going to propose, like how do you actually propose to implement that? And then also like enforce it effectively, right? Is it a case that you would say the solution is more education, more early education on good food choices, you know, teaching people to cook, all those soft skills, etc. Like, is that how you're going to deal with it? Would, if you were in the government, is that what you would do, right? Um, if you were in the government, maybe you would say personal training and activity coaching, you know, are going to be part of the healthcare system, you know, and maybe that's something that we would support because obviously we think that that's a good thing. Um, but also maybe it's not a good thing because, you know, governments are inefficient and who's to say they would get that right again, again, just playing devil's advocate here. Right. Um, maybe it's a case of, you know, we just want to give cognitive behavioral therapy to everyone. You know, we're just going to deal with everyone. We're going to really subsidize and, you know, prioritize psychology and psychological interventions in terms of helping people with the emotional side of things. Because again, you see people arguing for that as well, right? And maybe that's the case. Um, Are you going to change culture somehow? Like again, like how do you change this kind of feeder culture that we have? Or the fact that, you know, if we want to interact and socialize with other humans, we have to drink or eat. Like if you're going to, what's your intervention there? Maybe you want to intervene and you know, give mandatory stomach parasites to people who are over a BMI of 25, you know, is that your, is that your, your, your intervention, right? And because again, like you see these things put out every so often, right? Is surgery, is that the solution that you think is going to be the case for the obesity epidemic? Maybe it's the case that you as a government or policymaker or whatever, you heavily subsidize 
um, like bariatric surgeries. Um, and that's, that's how you're going to solve it, right? Again, I want you to think that through. Is it the case that you want to give people drugs to help with uh, weight management? And I don't mean like Tren or anything. I mean like uh, metformin or something where you're like, okay, this has interactions that are potentially beneficial in this population. Maybe we like heavily subsidize these drugs, right? Um, and then a final one, like, do we go back to the church? Do we start paying indulgences for the sins of sloth and gluttony? Is that how we, we deal with the situation? Or again, go back to the church and you know, have a better sense of community, have a better sense of you know, where you fit in society, et cetera. Like, is that the solution, right? Do you have any other solutions that you would like to, people to ponder on and before we wrap this up, Gary? Yeah, no, just to, just to kind of steal, man, the position related to um, the kind of regulation component, like a lot of, cause, because this is something that obviously like immediately comes to mind, like you say, I know you're just posing the question, but people often assume that like if, we, if, if people propose policy of taxation on certain foods, that like that's inherently regressive because you're basically just making the poor pay more. Um, but the, the ideal there is that you put an incentive in place for, food corporations to reformulate products in favor of being in line with the, the healthy recommendations. So I think that is something that's important for people to get um, because, well, like we had, a, we had a presentation in college a few weeks ago and um, one of the people watching the presentation was uh, Professor Ivan Perry and he's very much, a, he's, a, he's a titan of public health and someone made that point about it being regressive and he was just like, no, this is not, do he's like, I've been listening to this for 30 years, <laughs> no way. Um, so it is just worth thinking about that. Like one way, like if you think about um, the sugar tax, for example, the ideal there is is not necessarily that everyone keeps drinking the same amount of sugar sweetened beverages or that you just stop people solely because it's more expensive, but that Coca-Cola turn around and say, you know what, we've actually found a way to maintain the product being tasty and useful for the consumer, but we've reduced sugar content by 30%. Similarly, like it might be the case that, um, I think this is probably less likely, but if you were to say, right, if you're going to sell, if you're going to sell a, a burger in a McDonald's chain in Ireland, it needs to have less than, I don't know, five grams of saturated fat and it needs to have more than four grams of fiber. And as a result, it would just be a case of McDonald's slightly changing the wheat flour that they use while preserving most of the product. So they're the types of things that I think people would uh, generally uh, be in favor of when it does come to regulation. And I think some of those are very reasonable because I think that another thing that's just worth getting out of this conversation as well is that it's not just about totally changing everything to this radically perfect environment where we don't sell any junk foods, but rather that there's just a, an environment that's slightly more conducive of you making better decisions. So like, for example, if it was the double cheeseburger in McDonald's, that maybe it has just 10% less calories and just 10% more fiber so that over decades, those things actually start to add up and over millions of people that you actually see a dent on public health as a result. So anytime we're kind of posing these solutions, like I'm not in favor of like the government just deciding exactly what we can and can't eat. Like you go into your centra and you've just got like 10 options or something. Like I don't think that would be a great this outcome either. A social credit score. I'd be like, Gary, yeah. <laughs> have six chocolate bars this month. <laughs> Um, yeah, like that's that's the thing with government intervention. Like you always have to keep in mind the unintended consequences of those actions because again, government is inherently inefficient, 
because it doesn't have to abide by free market economics. And again, that's the beauty in it, right? And I always look at it in terms of it's basically like warfare. Like you want to give your enemy a way out, right? Like you don't just cut them off because like then they fight to the death because you've only given the other option of death, right? So you do it with these companies where it's like, here's your way out. Reformulation is your way out or whatever it is that you're trying to nudge them towards in terms of this is how we, this is what we're trying to regulate against in terms of higher calorie stuff. So you give them the way out. You give them like the, the sugar tax is a good one in terms of like, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be for taxation in general, but it's a good one in terms of a proof of concept where it's like you give them a way out. The way out was a reformulation. It wasn't just we're putting a, a tax on any drinks that contain sugar, you know, and um, it was a tax on when they contain over this amount of sugar, etc. Um, so it gave them a way out where it's like, oh, we only have to abide by this level. So we've just reformulate. So we stay underneath that level and happy days. We avoid the tax, you know? Um, so it can be done well. Again, this is why they need to be very well thought out. And unfortunately, governments are very rarely well thought out. And that leads to a lot of mistrust or distrust in the effectiveness of government policy. And it's actually, as I was just discussing with Gary earlier on, like the more you learn about economics, the the worse you view governments in terms of their interventions. And this is not just a, a left-right thing. And um, this is just on both sides. They would look at it and be like, this is just like from a, a basic economics point of view. It's like, these guys just don't know what the fuck they're doing like anyone <laughs> you know like a left-wing government gets in or a right-wing government gets in and none of them seem to care about the unintended consequences of their actions but anyway that's for a future episode i'm sure and um, anyway gary where can people find us do all that jazz this is a long one and um, what else do you have to say yeah too long it doesn't matter no one's listening anymore other than me or you if we're listening back to listen to the uh, poor sound quality <laughs> because it's Sunday evening. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, you can find us obviously on all of our social media platforms. If you just want to follow along with the content that we're producing for free, subscribe to the triage newsletter, recommend it, join the triage method community, Facebook group and follow along on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, if you want. Um, and, and, Obviously, if you're a coach and you're looking to further your education, you can join the Coach's Corner. So that's highly recommended. And if you're someone who's just looking to get on the path with your own goals, then I'd recommend um, getting involved with online coaching. So uh, particularly as we move into the new year, which will hopefully be a better year for most of us, um, you can get on the path with your goals uh, by signing up for online coaching. So we do have spaces available if you are interested absolutely wonderful anyway guys i've literally nothing else to say so uh peace out